Regular listeners of Acquiring Minds have heard many times the admonition, don't buy small. Buying a business without enough SDE gives you no cushion as the new owner. Well, as sound as that logic is, I feel like I have just as many guests who defy the rule and still make things happen. Today's guest, Chase Murdoch, is an exemplar of this because Chase and his partner, Adam, have built a hold co of really small businesses. Now, Chase himself says that they did so not for some strategic reason, but out of necessity. They'd taken no outside funding, so tiny businesses were what they could afford. But there's power here, because if they can 5x each of the businesses, as is their plan, they will own a portfolio of not-so-tiny businesses and own them outright, no investors. And by the way, these acquisitions have all happened only in the last two years. Chase's hold co is called Dakota named for the decades he intends to be building and holding these businesses. So the long-term cash-generating potential of this portfolio is anything but tiny. But it's not all about the money for Dakota, really. These are cool, fun businesses that add to the fabric of their hometown, Salt Lake City. A custom hat maker, a workshop for local artists, a builder of accessory dwelling units, ADUs, not your typical assemblage of boring businesses. Really interesting what Chase is building and still very early days. Here he is, Chase Murdoch, co-owner of Dakota Group. Welcome to Acquiring Minds, a podcast about buying businesses. My name is Will Smith. Acquiring an existing business is an awesome opportunity for many entrepreneurs, and on this podcast, I talk to the people who do it. You already know that business owners are making amazing use of virtual assistants, often based in the Philippines. And while virtual assistants are helpful, virtual professionals are transformative. More Staffing is a boutique agency that hires A players in the Philippines, not for simple tasks, but for deep competency work. Think operators, supply chain managers, controllers. More staffing de-risks your engagement with a 12-month guarantee to you, and they provide coaching for six months to their talent when an engagement begins. That means your hire is coached in the background, no additional cost to you, so that your working relationship flourishes and is as successful as it can be. Global staffing is increasingly the norm, and building the muscle within your business to take advantage of it will be crucial in the years ahead. Speak with more staffing about the pool of capable, affordable managers they can connect you with. Check out morenow.co. That's morenow.co. Chase Murdoch, welcome to Acquiring Minds. Well, thanks for having me, man. It's good to be here. Chase, you are the co-owner of a Holdco in Salt Lake City called Dakota Group. Dakota includes one business that you started from scratch and four others that you've acquired over just the last two years, I believe. There are many unique and interesting angles to Dakota, and we're going to get to all of them. But before we do that, let's hear about your own personal history. Chase, please. Sure. Well, um, yeah, like I said, great to be here, Will. Um, 
So my background has been in entrepreneurship ever since um, my early 20s. Um, I have been an entrepreneur in the zero to one space. So creating companies, um, primarily pursuing venture backed ideas, pursuing pursuing big ideas, moonshot ventures. Um, and contrary to the space that Dakota is in today, going from one to two or one to 10, um, mm -hmm. I, I got the first 10, 15 years of my career um, start in the zero to one business. So starting companies from scratch, building a startup team, trying to find product market fit, um, raising capital. And uh, one of the things that I found as I was doing that is um, it was really fulfilling to me as an entrepreneur in the sense that I love building and assembling teams. I love going after big ideas. I love working alongside smart people. Um, one of the things that I wasn't feeling um, an, an itch being scratched was this desire to build something long lasting, this desire to build something sustainable. And I felt like every project I was pursuing, the goal was to go on a one to five year sprint, a, a quick trade off where I would trade off, um, you know, comfort, um, a casual day to day work life balance for an outcome of shooting for the moon, you know, trying to build the next Twitter, uh, for example. And uh, while it's fulfilling and while it's a, a bold endeavor and while I respect the entrepreneurs who, who have built uh, their entire careers doing that, it, it left me feeling like um, it, almost like it was the arrival fallacy. Like I was, I was you know, wanting to get to an outcome and build something temporary in order to exit, in order to sell, um, in order to kind of get to some, some quick middle ground exit. And I'm sure we'll get into it as we go, but Dakota Group is kind of the, the antithesis of that. It was kind of the solution to that issue of um, not only did we switch leaving the zero to one game to go play in the one to two game, um, but it was how do we build something uh, long lasting, ideally with a multi-decade strategy, hence the name Dakota Group, um, where we can build something sustainable. And so my start, first 10, 15 years was pursuing various entrepreneurial projects, some successful, some completely flopping, um, and a lot in between. And uh, that's I've, I've always been an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. And you are, as I said, now in Salt Lake. Were, were those years of your career also in and around Salt Lake? Or did you do a stint in the Bay Area? I, I seem to recall you were also in Asia for, for, for a time. Yeah. So I've been out in Utah for somewhere between 15 and 20 years. So Utah is now home. Um, I got my start and where the entrepreneurial bug first bit was when I was relocated out to the Philippines by a company I was working for. This was right out of high school. It was a unique experience for, for me, for being so young, a company willing to relocate me, go out to the Philippines and oversee a team of project managers in the market research space. And uh, that, that was where my first uh, entrepreneurial project began is I was out there working and I uh, was traveling frequently because when you're in the Philippines, you're an $80 flight from so many cities in mm -hmm. Southeast Asia, from Hong Kong to Vietnam and everywhere in between. And uh, it was where I actually picked up my first custom tailored suit uh, out in the Far East. And I had it made overnight. It was $80 and it was falling apart on the plane ride home, but it fit me perfectly. And I, I, I kind of just remember that moment of saying, this is an interesting product. We don't have this in the yeah. States. 
Um, the supply chain is obviously a mixed bag. Some of the suits, uh, I ended up accumulating a half dozen custom suits during my time there. And some were remarkable and really well made. Um, some were, like I said, falling apart on the plane ride home. And uh, I, I finished out my stint there, relocated back to the States. And fast forward about a year later, that's where I started my first business importing custom suits. So that was where my career got its start. This was um, probably 2009, 2010 and uh, ended up raising some capital to go pursue this uh, venture and um, ended up growing it to a multi-state business. And um, yeah, it was, a, it was a really fun journey. So I've uh, been in Utah 15 years um, and spent a little less than a year out in the Philippines at the very beginning of my career. That's, that's a really exciting, I'm sure it was quite, quite an adventure. So let's get to the first business that you that is part of the Dakota portfolio Taylor cooperative uh, custom suits and how you decide give us kind of the decision point where you and your partner decided to do that and leave zero to one behind what was the kind of the, the moment of crystallization yeah so the uh, the story goes back to southern Utah we were out hiking together um, I had just uh, exited a, a tech startup uh, he was kind of in between projects as well and Adam my partner in Dakota group he and I were really close friends and a part of it was trying to figure out what we were gonna do next and um, I, I was at this inflection point in my career feeling some of these emotions we're talking about of do I want to continue pursuing zero to one uh, primarily tech enabled startups um, or do I want to go make a career pivot? And he was in a very similar position. Um, it was a grueling multi-day uh, hike that we took in Southern Utah in Capitol Reef National Park. And we went down with no intentions of starting a business. We, uh, we came back up though with the very beginnings uh, of a business plan to go start uh, naively this idea of a small business that we would start with a limited amount of capital. We would hire a general manager very early on. And the vision wasn't to go build a multi-small business holding company. We weren't even thinking along those lines. The goal was if we could start something small on the side that was cash generative, provided a little bit of an income uh, on the side to me and Adam, it would allow us to have the fuel to go continue to pursue moonshot ideas. So we hadn't even fully made it full circle to, we want to build small businesses. It was simply, we see an idea of creating a lifestyle business and we'll go figure it out from there. Let's let's get something profitable. Let's optimize for building a really great product. Um, it doesn't need to have a large TAM. It doesn't need to have a large moonshot opportunity in front of it. Let's just create something small, something we're proud to have in the community and something that financially can be a really good vehicle, vehicle in our lives. And then we can continue to pursue entrepreneurial projects. Um, we ended up starting that business not a month after that hike. We, we went from like idea to our first dollar of revenue in 30 days, uh, ended up filing to create the entity and uh, started it on about $750. And at the time, very naive ambitions. 18 months later, we were doing about a million bucks a year top line. So we were able to very quickly grow this, this business, um, forged some really great partnerships in the supply chain, and we ended up signing a lease agreement on some space for a brick and mortar luxury suit shop in Salt Lake City. And I kind of liken the process of building a small business kind of like uh, what, what I would imagine a sculptor goes through when they're kind of shaping a, a bust. When they're, they're, it's like the first steps of creating this sculpture is you're hacking at the clay and you're just trying to create the, the semblance of a head. And that was us in year one. It was just, we were, we were just trying to build a great product and we were making broad brush changes and trying to build something that really worked. And what we found is year two, 
got easier and a little bit better. And year three, even easier and better, better product, better team. And it kind of like the way you might sculpt a bust of year one chopping at it. And then year two, it's like you're pulling out the knife and you're shaping the ears and you're shaping the chin. And then you pull out the scalpel and you're starting to really shape it. And that's what it felt like building this business was. And it, it was it was very different from what what I had built in my career previously, which was raise a boatload of capital, burn through it as quickly as you can to go get to the next tranche or the next fundraising milestone um, and build aggressively. This felt very different. It felt iterative. It felt sustainable. It felt like we were making a lot of small incremental changes as opposed to a lot of big transformative changes. And um, it led to the creation of a really, really great team. Uh, folks who stayed with us even to this day, who have been with us for years and years, it led to a really great product. And it was a really fun format of company building. And that led... that company was effectively Taylor Cooperative, uh, which is our first operating company in our holding company. So it's a luxury custom clothier, air brick and mortar in, in downtown Salt Lake City um, and a really beautiful business. It's a great business model. It's a really, really fun product. And we didn't know this at the time, but it was essentially our unfair advantage that allowed us to start acquiring companies and led to the idea of becoming a multi-company holding company. But at the time, the naive ambition was let's keep it as a sideshow and we can go pursue other ideas. Eventually, as the years went on, we fell in love not just with that business, but we fell in love with the idea of small business and what um, you know, what kind of role a small business actually plays in a community. And and we started to begin to have these thoughts of, well, what is a community? What is a city without small business? And you know, why have I spent the first ten or fifteen years of my career not even thinking about Main Street small businesses, thinking about you know really large moonshot technology ventures? And is this potentially where I want to spend the next chapter of my career um, building companies like Taylor Cooperative? So that was the genesis of it all, and that's how that's how Taylor Cooperative came to be. And Chase, when when you guys are thinking, okay, we're going to start a small business, and it's going to throw off enough cash to enable us to experiment and go and do the next moonshot, that still belied a lot of confidence on your part that you could just spin up a small business that would generate, you know, a healthy amount of cash. And sure, it's not quite, you know, the chances of success of doing a small business like that are a lot better than one in a thousand of, of doing a moonshot unicorn that is successful. But, you know, all business, uh, th there's a lot of risk to it. And all, you know, the, the whatever, nine out of 10 businesses fail. I don't know if that's actually a you know, that, that's kind of the rule of thumb that you all hear. Who knows if it's yeah. actually true? Um, but but there's a high failure rate in business. So I'm just struck by how confident you guys were that you could just start a small business that would generate a few hundred thousand dollars a year, you know, bing, bang, boom, you know? Well, I, yeah, fair. <laughs> you were right. You were right. <laughs> but so you I did. Think there were, I think there were two thoughts on that. One, um, this was effectively a, a do-over of a business I had previously started 10 years before. Right. Um, right. and, and so I had that advantage. And the, 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 the second thought I have is, so while we had a lot of the product knowledge and a lot of the supply chain relationships, and uh, you know, I had a very crisp understanding of how this business model works, um, the second thought I have is we went into this completely differently in that we didn't raise a dollar of outside capital. We funded it initially with a $750 investment. And that $750 was enough to go get to our first sale. And that first sale funded our second sale and those first two sales. Fund and, and it was cash generative from day one. And, and the ambition wasn't to go build something that was throwing off hundreds of thousands of dollars in free cash flow. The ambition was if, if, this, if this provides two to 5K a month to each of us, 
um, that, that's 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 a game changer because then if we're pursuing one of these moonshot ideas, we could potentially cover some living expenses or help subsidize this next big idea so that if we were to go raise capital on that idea, we could delay that date. So it was, it, again, the way we were thinking about it is so different from how we're thinking about it today. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it, the general idea of as you're building, it doesn't look like a, a straight up into the right line. Um, but as you look back, you can kind of see some of those dots and how they connect. So at the time, our, our ambitions were really naive. Um, we simply wanted a small business that we were proud to have in the community that was throwing off some cash flow and ideally somewhat independent of our time. And we were wrong on some of those ideas, but uh, we were right on some of them. And that led to, you know, the creation of that business. Great. Thank you. And when, so once Taylor Cooperative started being successful and you really got a taste for small business and, and, and businesses that, that live amongst the community and serve the community, what conclusion did you draw? You asked yourself, well, why have I been working on these moonshots and so overlooked this world? What was your conclusion as to why that had been? Well, you know, I think I started to see a shift in what I wanted out of my life. I think um, as the business, coming back to that bad sculpting analogy I made earlier, as we were pulling out that that fine scalpel and making those adjustments, it, it was very fulfilling. It's it's uh, it's fun to tinker on a business and to see changes yeah. you put in motion return a kind of positive result, whether it's, again, team or product or anything related to that. Um, and instead of wanting to go um, be on the cover of you know the Entrepreneur Magazine or Fortune, it was like I, I, I really was valuing the work-life balance. I was valuing the, the team building component, and I wanted to continue to do more of that. So it was kind of a, a shift in what I personally wanted, and I think Adam was going through the same thing. Um, but there was this higher purpose that I was personally starting to feel as we were building it. It was becoming something of, we didn't use this term at the time, but we use this a lot today when we talk about Takata. But Taylor Cooperative became more and more something of a community asset. It was something where we were involved in community events. The you know All the local mayors got their suits from us. It was, we got to meet really interesting clientele. We would advertise in local publications. We, we were a part of, of, of Salt Lake. And, and I, I kind of wanted there to be more businesses like that, not fewer. And as I kind of got to know the business landscape, uh, the small business landscape, there, there's a lot of stats that are alarming for where we sit today in 2023. Small business is on the decline. There are fewer small business to, small businesses today than there ever have been. Uh, large mega corporations like Amazon are making it more difficult to compete in the marketplace, more difficult to recruit talent. Um, and if we fast forward this 20 to 30 years, I don't like that world. I, I don't like this vision of you know on the corner of Maine and Broadway in Salt Lake City will be an Amazon you know store. Right, an Amazon pickup locker, um, and so a part of like the early idea as well before we were thinking about Takata is um, it's intellectually stimulating to try to figure out how can we uh, compete as a local independent business with some of these larger mega corporations. You know, there's large brick and mortar retailers who sell uh, suits. How do we compete with that? And and what is the role of local business in in our economy? And so as we were continuing to to find success year over year, throwing off more cash flow and, and the product getting better, net promoter scores through the roof, we were trying to figure out, Adam and I, do we double down on this business? You know, we're throwing off cash flow. Do we reinvest every dollar back in this business and go open multiple locations over the United States? Do we sweep all the cash out and stay as a local business and just sweep 
every dollar of free cash flow out and maybe go buy a cabin? Neither of those answers felt right. We were too young to, to go buy the cabin. It, it felt like you know, small business is risky. It's like, will it be around in five years? We, we wanted to ensure that it would be. So it didn't make sense to not reinvest. But to go reinvest every single dollar in growing Taylor Cooperative didn't feel right either. And this was around COVID times. And um, we had the opportunity to acquire a second business. And that came knocking on our door before I had ever uttered the words holding company or before Adam and I had even thought about our kind of long-term vision. And over the course of that year, year and a half process of considering buying this business, it, it led to a lot of reflection that ultimately led to Dakota Group. And one of the thoughts we were thinking about at the time was, did the playbook that's worked for us over these years at Taylor Cooperative and building this first business, can that playbook be applied to other small businesses? And that's what we wanted to go figure out. Um, and so those, those were some of the thoughts going through our, our mind at the time. I want to share an update on the Acquisition Lab. As you know, the lab is a highly vetted, cohort-based accelerator and community for people serious about buying a business. After going through the lab's month-long intensive, you have ongoing access to almost daily Q&A sessions with advisors, regular live deal reviews with Walker Dibel, author of Buy Then Build, potential deal team introductions, and a very active Slack group with other searchers on the path. Well, the update is that the lab recently passed 60 businesses acquired and for well over $100 million in aggregate transaction value. Also, all members now enjoy lifetime access to the lab. Because when you buy a business, it's often just the first of many, and the lab wants to support you in every deal, not just your first. Lastly, check out my recent interview with Shane Ursum, episode 105. Shane acquired a business with over a million dollars in EBITDA in just six months, and he attributes a lot of his deal success to what he learned in the lab. Check out acquisitionlab.com. Or email the lab's director, Chelsea Wood, chelsea at buythenbuild.com. I do want to return to your the kind of uh, the, your philosophical um, view of Amazon on every corner versus something local, you know, a locally owned business on every corner. This is a this is a kind of tension that's been going on since you know. Since for since forever, since franchises yes. were invented, and yes. then Walmart came along, and then and for our generation, it's now and Amazon has been the story for the last ten and fifteen years. But there's always some um, monolith that seems to be gobbling up um, small business, and has been for low these seventy years probably. Um, and you know, we we could indeed have a very philosoph philosophical conversation about this. Um, and I and I think that. And I'm going to tie this in now too to Moonshot, you, just your your personal ambitions and your own career and how you envision it. Moonshot versus small businesses. I think one of the reasons I, I'll I, you correct me because I'm going to put words in your mouth because it's kind of how I feel too. The small businesses are things that are overlooked is because if you're ambitious, you want to do something big, and small businesses don't feel big. I mean, they have. It's right there in the name, small <laughs> business, right? Correct. And so what I what I think you may have stumbled upon, and, and, and a lot of people in our space, and particularly those of you uh, building Holdco's, is a way to thread the needle, to be involved in small businesses and keep the keep all of that that texture that we all love, both as entrepreneurs and as the people who live in these communities. We don't want everything to be being Donald Starbucks and, and Amazon. Um 
to, to keep the texture of small business, but still be able over the course of your 40-year career to do something big, i.e. a Holdco. And, and so it seems like that, that may have been this kind of the answer, the, the, the threading the needle of being able to do small business for a career, but still do something big for your career. It's, you know, what, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I, I think you're onto something. And I've never really thought about it this way, so I'm glad you're, you're kind of teasing out this idea in, in that way. I, I think, um, well, I'll, I'll share something more personal than I, than I usually share in conversations like this. Um, when I had my son, who's 11 years old today, um, I was in my 20s and um, went through a divorce during that process. And co-parenting uh, my son between um, my household and uh, his mom's house. And at, at the time, that was when I was in the very beginning stages of, um, you know, really looking up to these coastal uh, hubs as hubs of innovation and places to go build a career and kind of the only place to be if you wanted to build a company that would make a dent in the universe, so to speak. And mm -hmm. I remember mm -hmm. feeling really attracted to wanting to go relocate and go move out to the Bay. Uh, a lot of my friends mm -hmm. had done that. And um, entrepreneurs that seemed really committed to do, building something big, uh, that seemed to be the only pathway is go move to New York or out to San Francisco and uh, go pursue a big idea. That's where the talent pool is. That's where the capital is. And of course, that was off the table for me. I was, I was deeply committed to uh, you know being near my son. And uh, what that meant is I was somewhat anchored to Utah. I felt somewhat tied to Utah. And in the very kind of early days of that, what that meant is well, I better make the most of it. You can still build a great company in Utah. There's great talent out here. There's capital. Um, but also what that meant is if I'm going to retire here, what that means is I kind of want to go create a better Utah. I want to help shape uh, <laughs> creating a community where I want to live in it. And how can we convince folks to move from the Bay to Salt Lake over the next you know, years and years and years? Um, and, and so coming back to, to your question, um, relocating out of Utah has kind of always been off the table. But um, while I was seeing fulfillment in building something small and staying in Utah, I was feeling this um, sensation where I missed the, uh, the part of company building where you're recruiting really bright people and you're working on really hard problems. I think that's one of the tempting and fun things about going into tech is you can recruit really great people. You're solving a really big mission and people will uproot their lives to come and work, uh, sometimes for below market rate, for stock options to go try and attempt to build something big. And building small business, sometimes um, it feels very different from that. You're, you're not working with folks who um, are, are trying to go make a dent in the universe. You're working with folks who want a great work-life balance, who want to take pride in their craft. Um, so, so it's a different orientation. I felt like the, the pace, the, the, the rate of change was different in small business. So while it was fulfilling... I, I sometimes wouldn't feel as intellectually s stimulated, to, to be honest. And, and I think that that was also a part of the genesis. We never vocalized that, me and Adam. But it was like, I remember at a, at a point, we felt like we had created a playbook and created infrastructure and systems that we felt like maybe were bigger than this one small business. What if we went and we applied it to a second business? What if we went and tried to create um, a firm, a holding company, uh, that, that had the structure in place that could go and help incubate, preserve, steward multiple small businesses. Um, this was well before I had gotten onto Twitter and read the hundreds of tweets about the silver tsunami and the gap between all of these you know, retiring baby boomer businesses and the number of buyers available. I wasn't even thinking on that level. I think what Adam and I were thinking was we were having the time of our lives building a really beautiful small business. Our work-life balance was great. It was throwing off meaningful cash flow. 
how, how do we keep this train going without just doubling down on this one business? Um, and, and so that, that's how I think about that. It's a little meandering to your question there, but um, no. it's this culmination of all of these thoughts where small business needs to, small business is critical to the fabric of a community. Small business is fulfilling to build. Um, and yet we wanted to take on a bigger challenge. And, and I think those were some of the early uh, seeds that, that eventually sprouted as we started to form Dakota Group. And, and, and to make sure that I, I, I took the right thing away from that. So doing a hold co of small businesses scratches a different intellectual itch than doing a single small business because now you're 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 seeing into multiple businesses multiple problems you're a capital allocator you can be adding and subtracting from the portfolio probably not subtracting in your case i know you're kind of a hold forever um but you can be adding to the portfolio so there's all this interesting um there's all this interesting kind of intellectual stimulation that goes on right as well Correct. We we sometimes refer to it as a craft in small business mastery, right? Is is what does like what does an exceptional small business look like? How do they recruit? What is what do their financials look like? What how do how does product development run when you're a team of ten people and there's no head of product? What does marketing look like for a small business? And and I think one of the things we're trying to go develop over the next you know ten twenty thirty years is what is small business excellence? Like is there are there commonalities? How, how do we help um, create that? Because small business does have a disadvantage at the at the same playing table of a larger corporation. But what are some things that we can bring to small business that give it that leg up, that give it that unfair advantage? And that craft, which is very similar to the same craft that a craftsperson who's making a suit or a craftsperson who's making a hat, you know, in some of our current operating companies. It, it feels similar to me. You know, we're not craftspeople. There's no chisel. We're not working with wood over here. But it's it's this pursuit of how how do we find mastery. And I don't think it's that ethereal white whale. I don't think we're going to find it next year. It's this, it's what is the proper way to build a small business sustainably over multiple decades, even in this era of digitization, even in this era of Amazon, you know, even in this era of fill in the blank, what is small business mastery look like? And Dakota is almost a practice in how we go and, and, and uncover that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, I know that you are in regular touch with the folks over at Chenmark, and that sounds a lot like the the kind of musings that come out of Chenmark about just the the, the game, the iterative game of small business, the you know the inches of progress that you make that compound over time. So hopefully, you know, really nice financial outcomes, but also the kind of artistry of of the entire project as well. Correct. Because, yeah, if you think about where we're at today, skipping ahead a little bit, you know, five operating companies, it's almost five experiments. And if something works well in one company, our, our job is to help surface that uh, to our other operators who are running our other businesses and, and see if we can cross-pollinate the things that are working. Obviously, something that works in a construction company may not translate over to a fine art studio, um, but mm-hmm. sometimes mm-hmm. they do. And, and one of the things I've been struck by is despite having five businesses in five very different industries, there's a lot of common thread in between. And so I'm sure we'll get into that as we go. But I don't think I have this unique perspective, I think, or Chenmark, I think anyone who is in a seat similar to ours would have that similar takeaway of you're looking down on these operating companies that are facing very, very similar challenges, and you can start to pull a common thread in between those and learn some of those takeaways. And so... Uh, yeah, it does feel similar to some of the things that I've heard Chenmark talk about, and I think it's pretty built into the holding company model. Well, I, I'm interested to hear what some of these commonalities are. I, certainly, you hear it said a lot that 
a particular style of business, like a crew-based business or home services businesses or even broader categories, uh, blue-collar businesses um, have, you know, under the hood, they, they all kind of really feel similar. But you, it, but to hear you say it, where there's a lot of similarities from across small businesses, whereas to, in um, to hear you say it, given that Dakota's portfolio is so much more eclectic, a word you 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 like to use, uh, is is interesting to me because, like you said, like you know, small art studio to electrical service business, like are there a lot of similarities? It sounds like there are. We'll get to that. Let's bring it back uh, down from from theory back to back to the story for a <laughs> back minute. To Chase, reality. We'll, we'll, Let's get back to it. <laughs> I'm sure we're going to get go back up into the clouds here in a minute, but for the moment, okay. So, can you give me any numbers around what Taylor um, was doing in terms of SDE that gave you the comfort to go after this first acquisition, and then and then we'll hear about that first acquisition. What what, what did the business look like from in numbers? Yeah, I'll say I'll say broadly hundreds of thousands a year stockpiling cash, trying to figure out what to what to do with that capital. Um, so hundreds of thousands a year that we were trying to figure out what exactly to do from a capital allocation standpoint. Okay. Okay. Great. Um, and and you said it's a clothier. Is that is it? So is it more than custom suits, or is it pretty specifically custom suits for men? Yeah, that's the majority of the business is custom suits for uh, individuals, men, women. Uh, we actually have a very large presence in the androgynous kind of non-binary community. Um, but yeah, mm -hmm. custom um, shirts, denim, boots, custom shoes. So it's a full-fledged clothier, but primarily custom suits is where the bread and butter is for that business. Mm -hmm. And do you believe that sounds like a very fashion forward <laughs> business? Um, and I don't think of Salt Lake as a super fashion forward place. I live right outside DC, also not known for its, its fashion <laughs> forwardness. Do you think that uh, a, a business like uh, Taylor Cooperative can work in kind of any, any urban market? Yeah, I, I think the city needs to be of a certain size. Um, and and while suit wearing is trending downward in society, what right. we're finding is luxury suiting is benefiting from that. Because while people are buying fewer suits when they do want to buy a suit, they want one of higher quality that's a little more experience focused. So uh, it's a it's a fun business because our, our net promoter score has kind of fluctuated in the 60s to 90s over the course of the past seven years. It's a very fun product and a very fun experience. You come in for a fitting, uh, a drink is poured, a clothier spends one-on-one -on -one for 90 minutes getting to know the background of the client, understanding, you know, are they fashion forward and they want to design every detail themselves, or are they simply coming because they want guidance of, I just landed a new job, uh, I want to make sure I look good, uh, please guide me through this process. And so we have a team of trained personal clothiers who guide the client through that process. So it's a very experience-driven business, uh, which we like, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and the primary product is, is custom suits. And uh, despite Despite suit wearing being on the downward um, trajectory, this business is growing organically really, really healthy and double digit growth. I think we grew 25, 30% year on year from 2022 to 2023. Um, so it's a fun business. And, and yeah, that's the primary product. That's great. There was a business like that here in DC um, that started in 2012, 13, and similar thing. They had a really great space that they outfitted just at, at, at DuPont Circle, so a great location in DC. And you went in, and they poured you, you know, a great cocktail, or uh, and you know, had a very kind of refined, masculine uh, vibe yeah. with you know antlers hanging on the wall, like a whole look. Yeah. 
and just get, it was as you said it was very much an experience um and it was the talk of the town for a while it they ultimately folded i don't know what happened they may have expanded too quickly i think they were trying to take it to multiple markets but anyway um i i do remember having an experience like it myself and just thinking how cool it was Okay, Chase, let's move on to the, to this first acquisition. So you guys are, you've gotten this business, you've gotten Taylor Cooperative, which you've started from scratch to um, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year in cash flow. You're trying to figure out what to do with this cash, uh, reinvest it in the business, or this acquisition op- opportunity falls in your lap. Tell us the story. Yeah, that's right. So it's a business called Workshop SLC. It's a fine arts studio in Salt Lake City. Um, it's a it's an interesting business model. It's uh, essentially a WeWork, but for artists, or that's what it was at the time. Um, it was founded by a woman named Lucia Heffernan, and she's a prolific, accomplished artist herself. She bought the building uh, years before uh, we bought the business and building from her um, as a space for artists, a space for creatives. Uh, so six or seven private studios in the back, and in the front was a classroom. And Lucia Heffernan, uh, the founder of this business, uh, her, her vision for this was as an accomplished artist, uh, our artists are commonly taking classes from other artists. It's how you hone your craft. Even if you're an accomplished artist, you yourself want to be sitting at the hands of other artists and learning technique and, and sharpening uh, your skills. And so there's this uh, there's this industry of uh, art classes, um, art master classes that are commonly held in New York or LA or Florence. And she would go to those. And as a busy, accomplished artist herself, she got tired of having to be on the road to go to those classes. And her thinking at the time was, what if I just pay them to come out to Salt Lake City and host them out of this classroom? And I get to attend the class, and so do all of my friends. And that birthed the very beginning of, of Workshop SLC. Uh, fast forward, we made the acquisition in 2021. Uh, fast forward, we've since added a number of business lines to that business. We uh, we had this opportunity to come and really breathe fresh air in, into that business. She, um, she as, as a busy artist, was, wasn't putting a full 40, 50 hours a week onto that business and uh, wanted to stay focused on her art herself. And uh, we began conversations with her about uh, this becoming a second Dakota company. Um, We had this playbook that worked at Taylor Cooperative, which was uh, invest heavily in the customer experience, uh, build a really great brand, and and run a strong digital marketing funnel where we understand kind of unit economics. We're advertising on Google, on Facebook, um, at, at any given time, and driving traffic to the website and converting it. And we we saw this world where we could add on to Workshop SLC, not just these these destination artists who are being flown in from all over the world to teach, but also go build an introductory program for watercolors, an introductory program for acrylics and oils, uh, eventually a ceramics program. And uh, we, we kind of worked to, to develop this vision and see if what worked at Taylor Cooperative in a very different industry could also work at, at Workshop SLC. Uh, we ended up uh, closing in, in early 2021. And in the first 30 days of our ownership, we've spent more in sales and marketing than the, comp- than the previous owner had in the entire history of the business. We, we uh, essentially moved forward with uh, what we now call our kind of car wash integration process, where we are typically doing a full rebrand. We're implementing technology, we're building a website or rewriting the website, and we are investing in breathing life into the business. So, you know, the, the founder had a very clear vision. 
uh, she wanted this to be a hub for creatives in Salt Lake. We loved that vision. And what we wanted to do was bring more resources to the table uh, to execute that vision uh, with even more capital and support. And so it's, it was a teeny business. It was doing a few hundred thousand dollars a year. And we were able to 5X it in the first year just by investing aggressively in that brand and in, in growth, uh, developing out uh, product lines, adding more classes to the schedule. And, um, you know, fast forward a year, a year later, we were looking down and saying, you know what, this, this playbook is actually working. This is, this is a great community business. Uh, we have more students than we've ever had. We had a phenomenal operator. Uh, her name was also Lucia um, and uh, an artist by trade and um, just uh, really excited about the prospect of building a multi-decade art studio in Salt Lake City, Workshop SLC. So fast forward a year later, the playbook is working. And Adam and I were thinking um, it might be time for us to start adding to our collection and making our third acquisition. So that, that was the story of Workshop SLC. Uh, and that was the first acquisition we ever did and the second business to add to our portfolio. And Chase, this playbook that you're referring to, so I heard you say rebrand digital marketing, more product lines. So I understand that you could product that you could that you could playbook eyes a rebrand. You could playbook eyes digital marketing. Um, but product lines, that's that's very idiosyncratic. I mean every business is going to have different ways that it generates revenue. Is that part of the playbook or is basically the playbook like most small businesses probably aren't being as creative as possible about services or products that additional services or products that they could sell. So we'll come in to an acquisition, assuming there are new and interesting things that we can add to the current portfolio of services. Is that essentially how you would characterize that piece of the playbook? Yeah. I mean, at a 50,000 foot view, the, the way I would maybe frame it is let's apply some of these zero to one principles of starting a business and trying to identify product market fit and additional products and bring this intensity and fervor into the business that maybe the exiting small business owner, the seller, uh, didn't have for one reason or another, probably because they built this business around their lifestyle. They were attending their kids' soccer games. They were skiing 50 days out of the year. They were fill in the blank. Whereas we can come in with this kind of increased fervor and the, the zero to one tinkering you know, approach and and iterate on launching those products. And so as we found successful products, what, what we typically don't talk about is all of the failed products that we experimented with along the way. So it's a lot of tinkering. <laughs> it's a lot of uh, coming in with capital to go burn down EBITDA if we have to in year one, take it through a J curve where if, if we're truly interested in holding this business for multiple decades uh, and we have conviction that we can get it there, what investments do we make in year one vis-a-vis -a, -vis a brand, vis-a-vis -vis technology, an operator, a management team in order to go breathe that fresh energy into the business and allow it to be uh, to, for its potential to, to really be unlocked? Yeah, yeah, uh, that's great. And, and when you talk about the J-curve, are you using the capital of the business that, or let's just take the case of Workshop SLC, was it the cap? capital that the business itself was generating? Or did you infuse it with your own additional capital um, that was coming out of Taylor? Uh, above yeah. and beyond the acquisition, the, the capital that you put toward the acquisition itself? Yeah, we absolutely fueled it with our own equity beyond that to go and finance some of that growth. So we used debt. Um, so, so we've now made four acquisitions. We've used bank debt in two of them. We've used our own equity in the other two with a combination of a seller note on one of them. 
Um, but what we bring to the table is the ability to, if we have conviction behind this business and behind our playbook, is we can go above and beyond. And we, we have the ability to, to go invest in that J-curve, burn down EBITDA. We don't have bank covenants. We don't have outside capital. We, we really can, if we so choose, go and burn that EBITDA down and, and accelerate that growth. So we kind of look at it as almost ripping the Band-Aid off. We want to make some one-time investments in time and one-time investments in capital um, in, in order to go and uh, really rejuvenate this business and accelerate it into its, its kind of multi-decade strategy that we plan to, to take it through. Mm-hmm. Let, let's just get into something that, that you talk about a lot, Chase, which is when you kind of one of your key um, filters that you put an acquisition opportunity through is we need conviction that we can 5X this business in five years. Um, I, I have actually, I, I have a quote here from, from some writings I, I found of yours online. Um, it's, you say, it's why we've exclusively acquired businesses where we have conviction we can apply our playbook to grow the business quickly into more stable territory. So part, part of this 5X in five years um, uh, playbook is also buying quite small businesses. Uh, so, so, how do you get that conviction? Where, where <laughs> does question. that? Where does that? Well, let me yeah, let me where, clarify like, the the strategy a little bit, and then wrote me back to mm-hmm. that question if I don't if I don't end up landing there. But um, to start, unfortunately, Adam and I are not independently wealthy, nor do we have a rich uncle, and so what that means is we've had to fund each acquisition through. Mm-hmm cash flow of the previous business. And so we've kind of moved up the chain as we've gone. But like you said, on average, we're buying businesses in the one to five million top line revenue per year phase. So these are, uh, when you compare it to other holding companies, um, significantly smaller than um, what what most holding companies go focus in on. Um, that's not necessarily by choice. If, if I had it my way, <laughs> I would go buy larger companies that have more cushion, that have more redundancy in place, that have more robust management teams, that uh, that have you know a little bit more room for error. Because when you're operating in this sub 5 million range, you're in what I commonly refer to as the small business death zone. Death zone. Uh, just like when you're climbing Mount Everest, you, you enter this death zone territory where you have to operate quickly when you're within it and get out of it as quickly as possible. It's it's when the oxygen levels drop and you have to just surface to the top and then get right back out of it. It's a little bit dramatic, um, but in the small business landscape, under 5 million, you're one very uh, big mistake away from closing the doors. It's just there there is such, uh, such little durability. Um, there are some durable small businesses out there that are under 5 million, I'm sure. But by and large, uh, you know, you're one phone call away from a key person, you know, resigning to having to jump in and it sucks all the oxygen out of the room. And that level of risk is, uh, is real. And it's why most people, you know, if, you, if you're on ETA Twitter, like you and I both are, it's why the common um, recommendation is don't go buy too small of a business because you yep. want to have that cushion built in. Um, we, uh, we took a very different approach, mostly out of naivety and, uh, you know, bold fervor that we could kind of push through and, and, and drive through that growth, but also out of this forcing function, if we simply couldn't go afford a $10 million business, if we could, we would have done that. Instead, we chose this idea of let's go buy five or four, let's go build a portfolio of five smaller businesses, um, learn what it's like to be a multi-company holding company, accelerate those learnings, take on some of that risk and to offset some of that risk. We need to have conviction that we can roughly 5x in roughly five years. So there's kind of two things driving it. It's one, we want to grow out of the small business uh, death zone. 
um, you know, as quickly as we can. Um, and it's uh, it's buying businesses where we believe we we can do that. So as we as we look at businesses, we want to have this this viewpoint where we can pull certain levers uniquely well that the previous ownership wasn't able to. So whether it's the ability to burn through EBITDA to go plug in an operator and execute a rebrand, or whether it's today, now we have at the holding company level, a shared services team across marketing, finance, HR, legal, where we can bring that on day one and and go and, and implement gap accounting principles within the first 30 days of closing. And sometimes that's just never been done at that business, um, where we can implement really great organizational health KPI dashboard where we can uh, kind of help come you know, plug in uh, a process of company building that maybe you wouldn't find under that $5 million range, but go apply it for a one-time kind of investment of, again, both time and capital in order to get the business out of that, that kind of death zone. And so we're, we're in the middle of what I explained to our team is kind of phase one strategy for Dakota Group, where um, we, are, we are pulling aggressively levers of growth to go build durable um, $5 million plus small businesses. And and ideally, fast forward in a year or two from now, we're sitting on top of five really great small businesses that are profitable, um, that have that redundancy built in, have great management teams, have really great fundamentals in place. And we're throwing off millions of free cash flow per year uh, in order to go and acquire companies in phase two, where maybe we take a little bit more traditional of an approach. In other words, the Dakota strategy isn't to forever go roughly 5x businesses in roughly five years. The strategy is this is how we kind of earn our seat at the table of being able to be a self-funded, bootstrapped, diversified holding company of small businesses, despite not being independently wealthy. To us, it kind of felt like the only way we could go about doing that. Yeah. And so... Um, that's what we look for. You asked like how we identify that. Primarily, I would say one of our advantages is like implementing a really solid digital marketing funnel where we're, we're spending aggressively on acquiring customers in a repeatable and sustainable way. Uh, we're learning those unit economics earlier of what the CAC is, the customer acquisition cost and the lifetime value of the customer. And we're finding a way to just go repeatedly acquire customers. A lot of small businesses just don't have that because, you know, built in to being a small business is a small team. And what that means is you don't have a head of finance, a head of HR, a head of marketing. And so sometimes just the way we can pull those levers is by simply bringing those resources to the table. Um, with Workshop SLC, we saw opportunity to go and invest in a high net promoter score experience, um, implement a really strong digital marketing funnel, partner with a really great operator who knew the space, and, um, and, and take it through that growth J-curve. Uh, as we acquired Built by Design Construction, that was our next acquisition. Uh, it was a general contractor who had become, uh, who had emerged as the specialist in ADUs, accessory dwelling units, essentially micro housing, um, structures behind a structure, the backyard, uh, you know, structure that you can uh, have for long or short term rentals. And they had emerged as that. And, and we, uh, we saw opportunity to uh, do kind of the opposite of what they had done to successfully build a multi-million dollar construction company, which was saying yes to every type of job. And we had this thesis that we could help them come in and say no to every type of job, except for one or two things that we would emerge as a specialist in. To us, that was our thesis. That's what we brought in is let's go sharpen uh, a niche and let's go sharpen an area where we can become experts, find higher gross margins and uh, drive a better process in a very kind of crowded construction space here in Utah. And uh, that was our thesis there. At Northern Electric, it was a, a thesis around digitization and digital transformation of, can we take a very paper-driven analog process, uh, 
bring it digital and, and drive a more efficient and productive uh, workflow where we can better service customers uh, as an electrician. Uh, with Tat and Baird, it was a very similar thing to Northern Electric. Can we help digitize and bring a really beautiful brand online? And can we create some kind of uh, symbiotic um, advantages uh, between Taylor Cooperative and Tat and Baird? So I, I wouldn't say, well, there's like one playbook that we go follow. It's more we need to have conviction that we think we can. And even if we miss by a little bit, the the goal is that we are driving that growth to build more durability and capacity um, while we're also accomplishing our mission, which is stewarding exceptional community businesses in Utah uh, from owners who are ready to retire, who had a really great vision. And we feel like we can take that vision into its second chapter, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. No, it does, Chase. And, and the reason I'm, I want to press you on this is because to your earlier point that that you know don't buy small buy as large as you can because small businesses are so fragile you're one phone call away from losing your operator whatever you're you know you're one <laughs> sneeze right. away from the whole thing collapsing right so we all we all know this principle um and it's a solid one um so, but it's interesting that you guys have you know have, have really really made a playbook of going after these even if it's just by necessity you've you've gotten a certain you've built a certain expertise and comfort with these businesses and so what's interesting and, and what I think would be just interesting for the audience is like, you know, small, very small businesses under, you know, five, one to five million dollars in revenue. So what, whatever the SDE is, two, three, four, five hundred thousand dollars in SDE, those yep. are plentiful. And so if if there's some way that that people listening to this, searchers listening to this could could get similarly comfortable uh, or build similar conviction around these business around a business they see like you guys have. You know, that might really compress the time that they search because everybody, so many people out there are looking like, no, I'm just going to buy that 750,000 SDE, uh, 750,000 above SDE business. And, and that's why it takes them so long to find a business. Um, but if, and, and many of them don't. And so they eventually just have to lower their standards, kind of like you guys were forced out of necessity to buy a smaller business. So I, I, you know, I just think it's, um, I'm not sure there's more to say. You may have already answered it, but I just love, it's just very striking to me that you've built a hold co out of buying these quite small businesses that we're all told to avoid. You're having success at it. I, you know, it'd be great if I'm if I'm somebody out there who, who, who like Dakota can find, can get conviction around a $350,000 SDE business and, and feel pretty confident that I'm going to grow this thing 5X in five years. I feel strongly that we picked the right pathway for us. Whether I yeah. would be comfortable saying it's the right pathway for any searcher, I'm not sure. I, I think we had 10, 15 years of operating experience of like yeah. really uh, kind of entrepreneurial um, curveballs being thrown at us every day for 15 years. You know, the, the chaos of company building was not unfamiliar to us. And, and so, what I usually say is if a searcher um, if, is the profile of having a proclivity for company building and operating, and they've been in operations themselves, jump in. Um, yeah, reduce that that searching timeline and go jump in and drive growth. It's fulfilling. Um, y you'll, you'll find ways to be successful. If you're the profile where maybe you're coming in without that entrepreneurial experience, maybe buying a business where the strategy is less about driving growth and it's more about not breaking things and preserving what's already working and paying a price premium for that, that might be the better strategy. I, I just think going in with your eyes wide open uh, is important, especially today when interest rates are through the roof. And, and um, yeah. you know, you have to really Really think about how you, you know, what kind of risk you're taking on as, as you acquire a business. But for us, you know, we always optimize for moving quickly. You know, we, we, we would rather not sit. We would rather go operate and learn. We could have potentially bought one small, one larger business, 
um, and then we would have two companies today. We, we chose, again, perhaps naively and unintentionally, but we chose the path that led to faster learnings, um, a little more chaos. Um, but I think we're going to look back in several years from now and say, that was kind of our unfair advantage is we, we were able to accelerate mm -hmm. all of these learnings. And if we're successful, even if we only emerge with four companies in a few years, driving significant um, you know, revenue and, and EBITDA uh, that was self-funded, we're in a very advantaged position to go and take down our next acquisition. And so, you know, yeah. I, I, would, I would be careful, Will, to kind of just like prescribe what's, what's worked for us yeah. will we'll work for everyone and not because we're particularly gifted, just because everyone needs to kind of assess what their uh, advantages are and what they kind of bring to the table when, when you're looking at an acquisition. Because one, one last thought here is one of my biggest pet peeves is the general uh, attitude that I sometimes see of, man, small business is so easy. And uh, I'm just going to come in and buy this boomer run business and bring it online. And it's going to be a breeze. How could we mess this up? And um, every small business owner I've met with um, has been remarkable at running their business. They have learned it over years or sometimes decades. They know how to fly that that machine. If you know, to use the analogy of an airplane, that they know how to fly it blind. They, they've 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 gotten to the point where they can run this thing really really well. And so to have this presumption that you can come in and buy a small business and run it better, you you, you should check yourself if that is your your thinking. Um, but if if um, if if there's comfort with chaos and willingness to get dirty and willingness to go build. Um, I think buying at a smaller SDE level is something I would recommend because it allows you to get in the game sooner. Um, and uh, as you're successful in finding ways to unlock growth, um, it's, it's one of the best ways to learn. Learn by doing. Mm -hmm. Wow. That was, that was phenomenal, Chase. And I, I, that's such a great point that you made that, that the experience that you and Adam had was, was, was comfort and chaos uh, because you've been in, in zero to one land. And, and, and so... Um, you weren't easily shook by uh, by the unpredictability of all these very small businesses, um, and so for a, a a business buyer of a different background of a different profile, um, that might not be the case for them. So that, that great um, point of difference that you made there. You know, I will say just the other thing about buying small is that the ups. I mean, the upside can be potentially better. I think it's fair to say it's much harder to grow a business doing 15 million in revenue to 75 million exactly versus right. a business doing one to five. And yet yes. you're, you've still got, you know, you've still five X your, you know, your investment rough, roughly, let's say, or at least the valuation. Correct. I mean, there is that going for it, I should say. Like if you, the, the upside over a shorter amount of time could be better because a you know a, a very small business can maybe kind of grow a lot faster than a pretty mature business can. I completely agree. Yeah. So Chase, on this point about size again, and your point about you'll see people say, "Oh, I'm just going to buy this unsophisticated boomer business and go in and you know apply my 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 right. youth and Add vigor and, and make it yeah, and, exactly and make right. it better." You know, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and and I think. Most Acquiring Minds listeners, at least people who have listened to a few episodes, will not be so naive, uh, hopefully. What people will uh, hopefully have heard more from my guests and from me on this podcast is that this is really hard and that you're signing up for a rocky road, no matter no matter the business, you know. Uh, so, but, but the really, really small businesses 
can be more of a bloody knife fight than the more mature businesses, right? And so, yes. so that's what I really wanted to, to, to ask you. You started one, you've acquired four quite small businesses. Do you feel like they have been uh, bloodier knife fights be for their size than you know, other searchers out there who bought bigger businesses? Yeah, and I think for two reasons. One, yes, as a product of their size, but two, because we have this growth strategy. Um, I think if if we were content um, maintaining them at that smaller size and maybe growing with inflation or growing 10, 15% a year, uh, it wouldn't be quite the knife fight. Um, but in order for us to get to this like next mile marker that, that uh, we feel is a really critical juncture for Dakota's multi-decade strategy, we, we want to escape that death zone and we are driving growth. And well, one of the things I've talked about before is growth it, it presents challenges uh, and it forces you to to get very clear on on what matters and as you're growing especially as you're growing at 20 30 40 50% year on year we we had uh, two businesses grow over 100% year on year last year uh, you're outgrowing a lot of things you're breaking a lot of things you're you're implementing process and then you're finding yourself 8 to 12 months later going and having to rebuild that process because it no longer works uh, you're outgrowing people which is a really difficult place to be um th th so growth drives a lot of challenges and so Yes, I, I do believe we signed up for a knife fight that um, sometimes feels bloodier than the average searcher's day to day. Uh, Adam and I view that as as a as a one time investment that we are making into Dakota. This is you know we're financing Dakota through blood, sweat, and tears, not someone else's money or not our own capital. We're we're doing it through through sweat equity. Um, but but yes, I think it's a byproduct of because they're smaller, but also because we're trying really hard to get them into more stable and durable territory by driving that growth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Chase, do any any stories, uh, any particular knife fights come to mind that, that you might share out of any of your four acquisitions, um, just to give people a, a feel and a picture of what of what you know what what the real deal can feel like, what could be like? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the trickiest things about our line of work uh, as a holding company is uh, the operator component. Um, if, if I kind of think about the, the hierarchy, you know, if you picture like the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, uh, our, like our, our hierarchy of our, of our responsibility as a, as a long-term holding company, the, the very base of that foundation, the first chief most job we do is we should be good at buying great companies. Number one, the second thing we layer on top of that is really great at hiring and retaining great operators. The third that we talk about is assisting those operators in building a great management team. The fourth being assisting the operators and their management team in pulling the right levers and running the business properly, you know, as a hands-on advisory board. And then the fifth is realizing that long-term mission of, of the, the business, that, that original founder's vision. Um, and so we have to be good at buying great companies. The second is, is the one where we are, um, uh, where we've seen a lot of challenge. And as I, I have a peer group of other holding company CEOs, and we talk about this all the time, it is very hard to hire operators. And um, particularly when you're growing at a 60% year-on-year growth clip. Um, in one of our businesses, I'll, I'll have to be a little bit uh, broad, but um, in one of our businesses, we uh, went through two operators in a 12-month period. And if you imagine the team uh, that went through that journey. Um, we had a day where we announced to the team, we're the new owners. We're so excited to partner with you in this next chapter. Um, we've promoted from within. This is your new operator. To fast forward six months later, and that operator um, just chose to resign and, and just kind of had a, a 
personal life event that, that forced them to step out of the company. We went and we searched for a really great operator. Um, we found someone that we thought would be a great fit. And lo and behold, we actually plugged in the wrong person. We're, we're learning a lot about what a good operator um, looks like, sounds like, and how to best support them to be successful. Um, and so, you know, I, I would say the number of issues that come out of the transition of, of picking the wrong operator and the issues for the team on the ground as going through that much change and that big of a transition, uh, it's really, really hard. All the while, we're taking these businesses through this car wash process of going through a rebrand, implementing technology. And so, um, you know, I, I think that um, there, there's, there's, there could be a strategy, again, of, of go pay a price premium for a great business that you don't need to change, that's already earning well, has a great management team, and, and you're not changing much. That is so different, Will, compared to the, the strategy that we currently have is this phase one part where we're coming in and we're breaking so many things, we're changing so many things, and that can be really, really hard on the people, and, and that can be uh, a lot of change. And so we try really hard to over-resource at the Takata level so that we can be there on the ground with our companies, helping navigate that change when an operator transitions, come in and run that business uh, while we go search for another operator. But but, um, you know, I, I could come up with endless examples, but uh, I think the hardest has been dealing with change on the, on the people side. Um, people, is, is, that's the, the number one ingredient in company building. And if you get that wrong, um, it, it can create so many downstream cascading effects that make it harder. And so the way I think about that, that kind of Maslow's hierarchy of needs is if we're not good at buying good businesses, the next job of, of being good at hiring and, and retaining great operators gets harder because no good operator wants to run a bad business. And, and so if we buy a good business and we find a good operator, but they have a bad manager. So it's like we're, we're trying to take our businesses through this, this hierarchy of needs. And, and one of the most foundational pieces is uh, recruiting and retaining really great operators and helping them be successful. And um, that is an art, not a science. And we're, we've gotten a lot better at that over the past two and a half years. Uh, but I still think we're in chapter one over the next 20 years of like really becoming exceptional at that part of being a, a holding company. Mm-hmm. The and, and just to be clear, so when you have found yourself operator less in one of your businesses, you or Adam have stepped in and, and served the role of operator like you guys can do that in each of the businesses. You, you have enough uh, enough knowledge that you can get in there and run things. Correct. Yeah. And, and yeah. Um, as we think about that lack of redundancy inside our operating companies, we, we try to go over rotate for that at the holding company level. So that if that does happen, God forbid, we do have some capacity at the holding company level to go step in and do that. Um, it's, it's not a good permanent solution, of course, but it's a good temporary solution for us to get back into the business. Um, sometimes that helps us uh, get acquainted with all of the issues that were happening uh, unbeknownst to us uh, underneath the water. Um, uh, and sometimes it's just a great way for us to be there personally uh, and emotionally during a transition because that can be really hard when, when a small business loses its, its leader. Um, that can be a disorienting transition. And so, yeah, that's, that's a part of what we do as we step in. Uh, over time, we'll build out this kind of portfolio operations practice. We, we just hired a chief of staff, and uh, his responsibility will be over the next few years building out a portfolio operations practice where we have that so it's not me or Adam having to step in. Uh, because when we step in, that comes with a real cost. We're, we're drawing down time that could have been there mm -hmm. to support other companies or go look for the next acquisition. So we're, we're continually looking for ways to build more and more redundancy. Uh, but yeah, that's one of the uh, wonderful parts of the job is if, uh, if we do get a call like that, uh, Adam or I are going to go parachute in and go run a company for a few months. And Chase, with 
either with the story you just gave where you lost the two operators, I guess the first that first operator had a, a personal issue and the second one, it just didn't work out. Either that case or another case where you may have lost an operator. Um, what what did you learn from that? And when you postmortemed it, what had you done wrong or what had you misread about the operator or the operator business match that Ma'am, proved wrong? That's a great question. I think we have recalibrated a lot on how hands-on or hands-off to be with the operator role. Um, so, so if I kind of zoom out and speak philosophically for a second, um, the, the, the operator role is, is tricky because a really good operator wants autonomy. They, they, they're, they're in that role so that they can go effectuate change, um, tinker on the business, and, and te- play that fun company building role that we were talking about at the very beginning of our conversation earlier. And, and autonomy is something we want to be able to give. Too much rope, though, and we can find ourselves uh, in an issue if we selected the wrong operator. And, and so that's where I think we have, Adam and I have tried really hard to, to finesse that, that right rhythm, that right um, balance of how frequently we meet with operators, what role we play. Do they see us as their manager or do they see us as their partner? And, and what, are, what are we doing that contributes to that? And so, you know, we have a rhythm today where we do uh, board meetings every six weeks with the operator. We do a manager's meeting with the operator and their management team every six weeks. It's a great opportunity casually to get to know the management team and for them to get to know us. Um, we have, you know, frequent one-to-ones with our operators. We do these kind of strategic, um, you know, offsite planning sessions once or twice per year. Quarterly, we get together and we have leadership summits across the full portfolio. So we've been tinkering a lot with how do we provide that autonomy so that a really great leader has has the control that they want, but we have some guardrails in place so that they don't accidentally walk down a trail that we've walked down before that doesn't go to a good place. Um, And and so it's it's kind of this never-ending tug of war. And so you asked for specifics in the second operator that didn't work out. We um, we we were kind of experimenting with this model of giving more autonomy than we were comfortable with, a little bit more rope. And, and we learned that if you don't have the right person in place for that, that can actually take you to really treacherous water. And so we've, we've had to be adaptive in, in how hands-on, how present are we, and what kind of relationship do we have with our operators. I kind of talk about it um, often as we want to be the Iron Man suit around our operators at the Dakota level, mm-hmm. where through shared services, marketing, finance, HR, that's elective, they can, they can purchase shared services from Dakota, and we can support them in that way, but also just through the phone calls of like, if they need a shoulder to cry on or advice or a sounding board on a really critical decision, who to hire, who to fire, what strategic initiative to, to really invest in, uh, a, a rebudgeting exercise. We want to kind of ideally come into those conversations as, as that sounding board and, and that helpful coach to help ensure that collaboratively we reach the right decision together. Um, it, it's a really tricky balance, um, especially because in the first 15 years of my career, I was the front person of my companies. Um, I was the one calling the shots and I didn't have a, you know, I had board of boards of directors. But um, over the past few years, one of the most fulfilling components to building Dakota has actually been not being that front person, instead being this empowering behind the scenes uh, role to our operators, letting them be the front person, but being there as a source of um, camaraderie, um, you know, breaking bread, as well as guidance when, when the moment calls for it. And it's a really, really fulfilling day to day. I I truly feel like I could spend the next 20, 30 years doing what I'm doing because I, I love that role that we play with our operators, but we didn't land on that on day one. Um, and, and we've had to really learn by fire on how much rope is too much um, because a good operator also wants support too. You know, they, they want someone right. they can call. And so that that's, I think, the, the number one lesson we learned in that part of the journey. Well, well, the, the tricky thing is, the, the additional tricky thing is that there probably isn't 
uh, a single right answer. So because every operator is different. So every operator is going to have different capabilities and a different appetite for your support and a different appetite for autonomy. So it's not like you'll arrive at the, you know, one day you and Adam will be like, we got it. We cracked the puzzle. Here's the answer. It'll always be, it'll always need to be kind of conforming to the, the operator of the moment. Um, so it's, um, completely right. It's you, this you know, ethereal it's, there, there, journey. <laughs> there, there's an analogy here to parenting, not to say that your operators are your children, but there's an analogy here to parenting where, you know, that push and pull, how much autonomy, how much authority is, is something every parent goes through with kid number one. And then if you try to apply what you've learned from kid number one to kid number two, who's a completely different May human. May not translate. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. And often you'll hear that it's just, it just doesn't at all. And so, you know, different techniques for every human. <laughs> so. Correct. Um, okay. This is fantastic, Chase. Well, we, we're, we're bumping up on time. I want to make sure, I want to circle back um, uh, just to the types of businesses that you like for Dakota, we talked a lot about size, but a lot of searchers out there, you know, th- there's the the familiar checklist of ideal characteristics of a business: recurring revenue, uh, recession resistant, uh, you know, et cetera. It's a business to business, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and we all know that there's no perfect business, and so you decide what you're comfortable. Uh, which of those criteria are comfortable sacrificing and which you're not, um, and so on. And every searcher goes through this kind of thought process. Um, does Dakota have criteria like that uh, where you won't touch X and you, you gravitate toward Y? Yeah. I mean, we're intentionally diversified. And so what that means is we're not a roll-up. We're not an accumulator. We're not focused on one space. We are in the mm-hmm. process of building platforms within Dakota. So, you know, Built by Design and Northern Electric are the beginning to our trades platform and kind of residential home service. And so we plan to make acquisitions in plumbing, HVAC, larger electrical contractors over the coming years. And and that platform, we will that, that, that should be a very meaningful part of our portfolio. Um, but we will continue to make acquisitions in very unrelated uh, spaces. I, I think life's too short not to. You know, we just have so much fun getting to know the industries and the businesses um, as, as they surface and as we kind of get inbound deal flow and, and have the opportunity to look at businesses. Um, I, I think there's definitely some things we're sensitive to. We're, we're really sensitive to avoiding high customer concentration. Uh, significant owner dependence. Uh, so we want to see a world in which we can come and replicate what the owner's done very well and, and build that into the business as a business asset, something that's actually transferable. Um, so, so there's certain things um, that, that we definitely are sensitive to, but um, aside from restaurants, um, there, there's really nothing we won't look at. I think if it were a highly sophisticated aerospace or life sciences business, we don't have any business running that. So, so it has to pass some sniff test. We have to have conviction that we are uniquely suited to um, to, to be good owners to this business. Um, but sometimes, really, the, the the way we we are uniquely suited to be a good owner is is our long term hold, our ability to really um, not have to um, you know make significant. Uh, changes to the original founding intent. Um, and so I, I think there's something very powerful about a willingness to um, you know, burn down EBITDA and, and take it through a J-curve, but then have this long and patient time horizon with no intention to sell uh, that, that allows us to be uniquely good owners to, to small businesses. So um, that, that's kind of what we look for. We want it to be a really remarkable community asset. We want there to be something that is um, you know, that could be distilled into uh, what makes this company great that we can enhance. 
Um, and then from there, in an ideal world, in, in a few years from now, we're simply a matchmaking service between operators that, that we've built you know, over the years, kind of our Rolodex of potential operators and small businesses here in the community. Uh, there's a really big advantage to being geographically focused the way we are, which is the, you know, as we're out there making acquisitions, getting to know brokers, serving on nonprofit boards, being involved in local chambers, uh, you know, Takata is nowhere near a name brand by any means. But um, when someone is thinking about selling, there is a chance that Takata's name comes up as a potential suitor. And so we're starting to get some inbound interest. Um, and, and so that that's good because that allows us to look at a lot of opportunities and be selective about what makes sense at this stage. So diversified um, ADD, um, but uh, pretty agnostic to, to what we're really going after. Yeah. Well, I imagine that th this local focus, this SLC focus, will the part of the, the, the there's just a lot of flywheel to that, and I think one of the most powerful aspects of that flywheel is the one that you just said, where your deal flow, maybe not yet, although you're starting to see it, but eventually, like if you really become known in town and and you're just the first call that any retiring business owner makes, I mean, incredible, an incredible place to be, and and I feel like that could be pretty realistic for you to get there. Correct. I think that would be a significant advantage uh, if, if we can get there. And I think the way that we get there is we have to run a sharp and disciplined organization. We have to be good owners. Uh, we have to build a really great reputation of being good to our sellers, uh, you know, being you know, really good stewards of these businesses. And so that stewardship is one we've started to use a lot more of um, because Adam and I have done that zero to one game for so long, we respect how damn hard it is to go build a business from nothing to something. And so that allows us to really appreciate that and bring it into its second chapter all the better. And so, yeah, long term, I think we want to be seen as a, as a destination home for uh, small business owners ready to either move on to the next project or ultimately retire. Great. How powerful. One thing I do notice about your business is I, I think, unless I'm, I'm missing one, is that they all all are consumer? They're all B two C, are they not? Yeah, they are. That's right. In that, but that's just by happenstance, not by strategy. Yeah, I, I think it's more coincidence. Um, there are definitely some B two B businesses we've looked at and gotten close to uh, pulling the trigger on, but. Um, yeah, I think we have a natural um, proclivity toward that, um, but I, I don't think that's a, an intentional, we won't do a B2B business. It's, it's more just a uh, coincidence and a, a little bit of a proclivity as we're looking at deals. Mm -hmm. uh, Chase, we're, we're getting tight on time, but I, I, I don't want to let you go before I ask um, just for the 30,000 foot view of the electrical business, because we hear so much about plumbing, we hear so much about HVAC. Um, and we hear about electrical as kind of the third big trade out there, but it's so much less uh, common to hear about it um, from in, in our world of, of search and in small business acquisition. Can you give us just the three-minute primer on, on buying an electrical business? What to sure. look for, what you liked about it, et cetera? Yeah, well, I, I should say Tim, this, the previous owner and founder of Northern Electric, uh, he, he came to us when he heard that we acquired Built by Design. He had done a lot of business with Built by Design. They had a really great relationship. And a part of our interest in acquiring a construction company, which is typically not a favorable business to go buy if you're talking to holding company types or investor types, construction's a very challenging industry. One of yeah. the things we loved about it, though, was the close proximity to all of these trades companies, um, all of these plumbers, HVAC companies, electricians. And uh, Tim approached us not a few days after we closed on Built by Design. And uh, we were not 
interested in doing two acquisitions in three months, which is what we ultimately did. But uh, sometimes opportunity strikes at an untimely moment. Um, and so we, we loved that we had that relationship already established. Um, so it, it allowed us. So in other words, I, I tell you that story because it's not like we specifically said, let's go buy ourselves an electrical contractor. It was an electrical contractor crossed our plate. We loved Tim. We loved the business, and we saw opportunity to go pull some levers. Um, so it's a it's a traditional uh, electrical contractor. Uh, it does a mix of project work and uh, break fix residential service. Uh, we're very bullish on residential service, and that's what we've been investing aggressively in. Uh, it's a trades company, and so what that means is it's one of the hardest companies I've ever been close to when it comes to recruiting great people. It's a shrinking trade. There are fewer electricians every day in the state of Utah. It's very very difficult to get a quality electrician to want to come work for you. And uh, even harder when, as an electrical contractor, you're on the smaller kind of end of the spectrum in size, but also on the lower end of the spectrum on price. Uh, when we acquired the business, uh, it was well below market on average hourly rate that was being charged for services. So we saw that as an opportunity, but it's also been a significant headwind as we've moved that that average price point up to deliver kind of higher quality service to, to higher quality customers so that we can kind of get into this virtuous cycle. We, we try to do this in each of our businesses where charge a price premium so you can have quality margins to hire uh, folks at or above market rate so that those quality people can go deliver a quality service so that you can justify charging a price premium. It's this virtuous cycle we're trying to get Northern Electric into. And it was hard to do because we uh, it was vastly underpriced. Uh, it's It checked a lot of the boxes that I think a lot of searchers look for in a trades company, primarily analog, run by an owner who had been kind of running at 20 to 30 hours a week. So so not investing aggressively in growth and pushing the envelope on you know, 40, 50, 60 hours. Um, uh, significantly analog, a lot of paper process, and underpriced. And so it checked a lot of boxes. We were really excited about this business, and it's been a really fun trade to get to know. Um, and I, I would say the, the, the short of it is trades companies we're learning are very hard to recruit for, but they're very simple businesses to operate in terms of like simple, not easy. They, they, from a building block standpoint, you're selling time and you have to deliver billable hours productively in order to drive profitable revenue. And so it's not a complex business model. And so as you can drive productivity, as you can drive demand, and as you can afford to hire, that's kind of the three-legged stool of our electrical contractor. Uh, if you can successfully do that, growth is inevitable. There's constant demand for it. Uh, as you indicated earlier, it's largely recession resilient. Um, it, it's a very beautiful business. And so I'm really bullish on the trades. I think two things I, I really didn't know about, three things I maybe didn't really know about the trades that were now very um, clear on, very hard to hire for. Uh, we thought we would come in and clean up on our digital marketing experience. And you know we kind of had this naivety that we could come in and kind of uh, out-advertise uh, some of the competitors. Um, not true. It's it's a very uh, it's a very competitive marketplace for acquiring customers profitably. Um, and then third, uh, the the valuations are are incredibly steep right now to go and and build out our trades platform. And so, uh, in a high interest rate environment with really high price points and strong demand for trades companies, there's there's a headwind. But um, as we're getting to know this electrical contractor and how it functions, there's a reason why you see HVAC, plumbing, and electrical typically being rolled up together. It's it's a very similar go to market motion. And uh, mm -hmm. I'm really looking forward to taking what we've learned at Northern Electric and applying it to future acquisitions. And, and why do you think we see less activity in electrical among searchers versus plumbing and HVAC? That is a great question. Um, 
I, I think electrical tends to find themselves more uh, tied to new construction and larger projects. Um, and typically, uh, when you look at a plumbing uh, acquisition, that the the sweet spot is where they're doing a lot of break, fix, residential. So you have a lot of high volume uh, jobs as opposed to very few large project based jobs. Yeah. Uh, and electrical can can oftentimes be in in that kind of area of the marketplace. Um, I think sometimes it's daunting. You're working with power. There, there's significant safety yep. issues, um, and so it's it's a trade that you have to know really well. You have to take safety incredibly seriously. You know, HVAC and plumbing, you have to take safety seriously. But I, I think on the electrical side of things, you're dealing with people's lives, and uh, there's significant yeah. safety protocols. So I, I don't have a perfect answer for that, but um, I, I, would, I would I would assume it's for those two reasons. Great. Yeah, that's great, Chase. I want to close out with um, just uh, as you look back at what you built with Takata and how you've just been become so immersed as as somebody in the world of small business and community businesses versus your years of chasing moonshot unicorn zero to one VC style entrepreneurship. What muscle has grown? What muscle have you grown? And what muscle has atrophied? It's hmm. a great question. Um, I, I think I've had to get comfortable moving at a more slow and intentional pace where we're optimizing for incremental progress versus transformative change. Uh, and, and I think that is, I'll give one answer for both. I, I think that is a muscle that's potentially atrophied is the ability to move fast and break things as the cliche out of Silicon Valley is. Um, but it's also a muscle that's developed the most is, is really honing in on a, a, a more intentional, overarching long-term strategy. Um, so, so making decisions more slowly, um, you know, not having to pivot constantly, um, but instead kind of picking those kind of key inflection moments that you're building toward and reassessing strategy once you get there, as opposed to when I was in the zero to one space, it felt like we were reinventing our business model weekly. Um, and most entrepreneurs that are in the zero to one space will relate to that. Um, so some of this is a product of the being in the one to two uh, arena where you're making progress, you're professionalizing, you're slowly making incremental change. Um, and, you know, to kind of tie off where we ended is, is for me, that is very fulfilling. It feels like we are shaping this, this bust. We are, we are making uh, progress and we're seeing that uh, daily as we go, the, the sculpted bust. Yes. Um, and, and so it's fulfilling. Um, sometimes it can feel uh, slower than the days when we were uh, chasing our tails and reinventing our business model weekly. But um, it, it's it's a really uh, fun place to be uh, to to be able to to be that intentional uh, with with company building. Well, I wonder if that's an illusion. Uh, I mean, you have acquired four businesses in two years after all, Chase. You're not inching along here. And so I wonder if the illusion is when you're in zero to one and you're pivoting every week, um, if that frenzy feels like a lot of progress, but it, I, I, but it's actually just frenzy. Um, and, that's a fair and, point. And, 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 and and as you're you're moving ahead here linearly and things aren't you know you don't it's less Tasmanian devil and more kind of like yeah. one foot after I the other but it, but it's, it's still very re it's still very real and and quite quick progress. Sure, I, I talk about the there's two different types of risk that you take on if you're in zero to one or one to two. In zero to one, there's so much risk in whether your your venture succeeds at all. You reference this kind of common, I don't even know if it's true either, but nine in 10 businesses fail. And it can be due to timing or due to just the product not being right or the team not being right or running out of capital. There, there's not 
that kind of risk in one to two. I mean, that, that, that risk is still present, but the risk that we take on, there's not as much existential, will this business cease to work next week? It's like, no, this business has worked. Northern Electric, we acquired it. It's been around 27 years. You know, we would have to do yeah. something pretty stupid to go take it off that winning track record. Um, but yeah. Adam and I have personally guaranteed a few million dollars in debt. And if something does break and not work, um, we, we have a lot more on the line. And so the zero to one, it's, it's you feel like you're in constant risk of existence all the time. I don't feel that at Takata Group, um, but it's a different type of risk where there's, there's a lot more on our shoulders. We have a larger team. We have more people under our employment. We have more debt. That we, then, you know, we, we have a lot more to consider. And so um, I think that's related to it as well. Is it doesn't feel like yeah. we are at risk of dying you know, every day. Uh, we feel like we're in a more controlled um, controlled risk uh, aspect of our journey. Right, right. But the stakes in some sense are a little bit higher in the sense that if things do go south, you have millions of dollars personal guarantee, you have people who's, you know, you're responsible for, you know, who, who you feed their families. So it, it's like in some sense, the, the stakes are, are realer than in Silicon Valley land, where if the business completely collapses, nobody's gonna, I mean, Capital will have been burned, and, and and I guess the employees of the business will will be out of a job. So I don't mean to downplay that, but in some in some sense, it's it's a little bit um, monopoly money uh, in Silicon Valley. Exactly right. I think there's risk in all forms of entrepreneurship. The risk is just different depending on on yeah. which stage you're operating at. Yeah. Chase, how if people want to reach out, how do you prefer that they do that? Uh, Twitter's probably the easiest and best way to reach out. I'm just at Chase Murdoch, um, and I, I would be happy uh, to connect if, if there's interest in reaching out. So thank you for the opportunity to be on the show today, Will. It's been fun talking to you. Thanks. Thanks for, so much for coming on, Chase. What a, what a really cool thing you and Adam have built at Dakota, and, and we'll be eager to watch for, for the decades that come. It's in the name. So thanks a lot, sir. Uh, and uh, I'm sure we'll have you back on here sometime next year. Thanks, Will. Appreciate you. 